Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Average to Relief Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Lowe, and today I'm joined by the one and only Alan Milway. So Alan is a coach to bike sport athletes, and he works with the best mountain bike racers in the world. Now, this is an episode I really, really enjoyed, and um, we basically discuss everything from the physical and mental and perhaps tactical preparation uh, that a mountain bike racer needs to have and develop in order to go from amateur to sub-elite all the way up to that elite international level. I personally took away a huge amount of value from this episode. And if you are a mountain biker and you're looking to take your performance to the next level, I'm sure you will as well. So without further ado, guys, let's get into today's show. Alan, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on board. Oh, it's, it's nice to be here. I, I, I appreciate the invite, Chris, and um, yeah, be looking forward to having a chat over these, uh, over these areas. Yep, absolutely fantastic. So um, before we get into the questions for today, like we've got quite a lot to get through, and I think it's going to be a huge amount of value. Uh, the listeners can get away from it. Um, but for the listeners, uh, who are you? What do you do? And um, yeah, what we're going to be talking about today. So um, my name is Alan Milway. I'm a, I, I call myself a fitness coach. I essentially coach mountain bike races and motocross races. I've been doing so since 2004. So I've been around quite a while doing this. And I guess my passion is helping elite athletes prepare for international competition. So that's the full, you know, from skills development, um, but mainly focused on the strength and conditioning aspect and yeah, helping the, helping them at international races. Fantastic. That's that very cool. So like we mentioned, um, we really want to sort of delve into the world of mountain bikers development and essentially how we can, again, best prepare them for elite competition. So before we kind of get into all the details here, always like to sort of start wide and almost define um, what an elite athlete has. So with the guys you work with right at the top level, um, what like the key characteristics they have to, that makes them elite? And then does this differ between different disciplines, whether it's uh, downhill, enduro, cross country, etc.? I think that the first thing to say is in these sports, they're a real mix of um, skills. You need incredible, you know, uh, skills development um you've got the bikes that come into it and the fitness plays a very big part in it if you like looking at um the physical side so to speak mountain biking can really be split generally from downhill on one end which is one race against the clock simply down the hill um you're generally an alpine venue you've generally got a chairlift to the top and generally it's a, a sort of a ski resort and the track goes down the piste, over rocks, into the trees. Um, more and more now they're on bike parks and more man-made tracks, but they've got huge jumps in them. And, and simply to get down them is generally a challenge for someone who's not at an international level. So these guys, you know, they've got very, very high power outputs and repeated power outputs, but also it's, there's a high upper body component to it as well. 
So if you think they're landing on a very steep downhill and then hitting a bank turn very quickly, you've got quite a lot of uh, inertia involved with that and you're trying to hold yourself into the position you want to be in on the bike. So you need quite a lot of um, force development to almost push back into, push back into the ground sort of thing. Um, enduro is a more, it's a newer discipline within mountain biking and is a mix of cross country, which is your classic um, mountain bike discipline where you're doing laps of a track. And enduro is essentially five or six downhill races across potentially two days. So they're sort of different stages. You generally self-propel yourself to the top um, on a liaison. And it's a bit like a rally. If you think about World Rally, this is a bit like that, but on mountain bikes. Um, I think where that differ differs is it's over such a long period of time. You know, it can be, it's, you might be on the bike for six, seven hours during the day. Um, the actual race times might be up to an hour when you total the, the different tracks together, but they're probably less than that. Um, so you've got this downhill element, but then you need to spread it over the whole day. And then the, the third discipline, the cross country, hugely popular in Europe, more leaning towards the road cycling side, our Lycra clad brethren, you know, they, there's a big crossover, cross country road races switch between the two. And the tracks are laps of a course and the lap might be 20 odd minutes. And they've shortened it now. It's about an hour and 40, just over an hour and a half's worth of racing. Um, and those guys, it's a much more sustained effort. So it's a more traditional uh, aerobic component to it in, in the sense of that you're, you're hitting a pace and you're trying to maintain that pace. It's not as stochastic as downhill or enduro when you think about the power outputs. But I think the thing that slips in there that's really quite interesting to, to discuss and think about is when you look at the overall potential energy demands and the endurance capacity of a rider a cross-country race is probably an hour and 40 minutes probably less than two hours but an enduro mountain bike race you know much higher calorie expenditure potentially over two days and it's something to bear in mind because a lot of riders involved with that have come from downhill you know maybe don't bear that in mind they think oh it's just like downhill over a couple of days but sometimes they get caught out on the last stage because they're, they're ever so slightly broken, you know, mentally and physically. Um, so yeah, from a physical standpoint, I'd say you, you have to have that mix. You know, you need to be able to develop high power outputs repeatedly. So you need to have this underpinning strength, but also there's a aerobically to me, that is the first thing to, to make sure you've got covered and is normally the weak link with an amateur certainly. Mm, so essentially just having that really strong base and then you can sort of further develop uh, strength, power, force development, everything on top of that then. Yeah, and I, I see this in the lab. It's something that, to, to put it into context, to me, you, you want that aerobic development to allow you to do more work. And what I've found when I'm testing, motocross riders is very, very similar as well. Mountain bikers, they'll come in, they'll be pretty good over short periods they'll be able to sustain pretty decent power output but their recovery when you're asking them to go again and again and again really suffers and when you look at their overall makeup and you see that they're 
lactate threshold level is pretty low. The anaerobic threshold is not very well developed. You don't have this nice spread between two and four millimole on a, on a graph. You're looking at them going, well, this is my area that I can get them to do more work and allow them to recover, to go in again. And if you do a, a high intensity repeated power output test, elite athletes, you know, these guys will just go again and again and again, hitting well over a thousand watts each time for 10 10 reps and an amateur they might be able to hit a thousand watts each time for the first four or five and if you were to stop it there your snapshot might be like oh it's not too much of a difference but all of a sudden come rep seven the amateur guy is lying on the floor can't move cramped up you know in absolute pieces and that's to me is where you're like right well why is he in that place you know he looked pretty similar to start with yeah, absolutely. And then I guess when you look at, you know, either an endurance event or downhill, they are very much, the descent is very much a sprint. Like I was watching, so uh, Greg Nard, so running loser, he's like on the pedals absolutely flat out and it's quite a pedally course. And, you know, like you didn't really see any drop-offs in his sort of, you know, in his speed, his sprint sort of ability towards the end. And I think that does make such a big difference. And like you put a post on, the other day about the differences between I think it's first and second. Um, I think it's like when I came second half behind Bruni, it's like 0.17 seconds, which is 1.82 meters and 0.07% slower over course of a, you know, a four, four, minute run, which is pretty remarkable. So these small things now will make an absolutely huge difference whether you're able to maintain that power outputs on that ninth, 10th plus interval, really. That, that's exactly, you've hit the nail on the head. That to me is really it. We're not judging these guys on, if I was to compartmentalize them and just go, right, I need you to be at this, you know, you need to have more power than anyone else. You need to have more of this than anyone else. It doesn't really work like that. You know, there's, we need to go, you still need to be able to deliver a high power output at the bottom of the track. It, there isn't a correlation specifically between the most powerful athlete and their position. Um, but when you think about, in terms of their watts per kilo, their relative power output, that's always very good across across the, the top guys. Um, and what was interesting is I was having a conversation with Greg after that, and I fitness tested Greg and the other syndicate riders in the winter. And Greg's power output wasn't the same as the other two. He wasn't as high as them, but aerobically, he was really, really good. And it allowed us to sort of build this picture up of him and go, well, you know what? You've, your aerobic development is awesome. You know, you've got a huge training history. You've got very good training protocols in place. We don't need to mess with that. But if I can increase your power output, so each time you're on those pedals, you can deliver more, it puts you in a better position because I know from your testing, you're not going to fall apart at the bottom of the track. And if you flip that on its head, if you've got someone who's got huge power outputs, but they, they're not able to repeat that time and again across a four-minute race, you can see where the time is lost. It manifests itself at the bottom of the track. And unfortunately, it's very easy for a commentator to go, oh, he's not fit enough. And they use this fitness as like an all-encompassing term. But ultimately, what the commentator is saying is that guy is not able to do at the bottom of the track what he was at the top of the track. And I think... If I boil it down, really, that's my job is to put them in a position that they can be pretty repetitive in what they do. But God forbid they get into that position where they're weaker for longer. 
you know, I don't want them to be pretty poor to start with and pretty poor to finish with. We've got to, you know, it's like when you talk about, I, I like in sprint repeats, I, I don't work in team sports at all or field sports, but I remember I was talking to a, I think it was a football coach and they were telling me that it's all well and good having pretty good sprint repeat, but if you're second to the ball every single time, it makes no difference. Well, I don't care that you're second to the ball. You have to be first to the ball. And that really resonated with me. I want these guys to be first to the first corner, first to the second corner, but also first to that, that you know, the finish line. Yeah, absolutely. That makes complete sense. So we kind of touched on the physical quite a lot there. From the mental side of things, um, you know, you can have the greatest sort of work capacity in the world, but if you can't put, put it together on the day uh, because of the psychological component, then you're not ultimately going to do very well. So you always see, like, say, people in practice and training, they look yeah. like the fastest people on the track, but when it comes to the race run, they fall apart. So what are the kind of perhaps key mental characteristics you see in these elite riders? What kind of separates them from winning and losing? So it, it's really interesting the, the way you phrase that because this is very much a conversation I've just been having with a psychologist yesterday and we had a long debate about this and it's something we always, I always talk about and a really, I guess a, a concise way to look at it is an elite athlete looks at these events, these um, stressful events as a challenge. They're like, I'm going to show you how good I am. I'm going to have a load of fun at absolute top speed. I'm going to, you know, really enjoy this. And it's a real challenge because I think I can do pretty well here. So they've got this sort of challenge mindset. And physiologically, that their response is slightly different because there are different physiological responses in terms of blood flow, etc. when you consider something to be a challenge versus an amateur rider. And let's be honest, we're generalizing here or a sub elite rider who considers the same situation to be a threat. So those guys consider that I might cock this up. You often hear, I've gone for a safe run. I had a pretty safe run down there. I, who wants a safe run? You know what I mean? I, it, it, we're racing here. This should be like, let's go. But when they've got that attitude, and it's, a, it's an understandable attitude. These are stressful situations. If I don't get the result, I might not have a job next year. If I don't get a result, I might not get any bonus money. And there's plenty of situations where up and coming riders simply need to get a result to get enough money to get home. You know, it's like, I need to put the fuel in the van to get home. Now, if that is your um, approach to the event, there's a big negative connotation to it. It's a threatening event. And, you know, from a, there, it's manifested differently physiologically. You know, you, you're, there, you've actually got a lot of vasoconstriction in that situation. Although your heart rate's gone up, it's centralized. You're not ready to go. But if you're like, right, let's go, you know, let's, let's, I'm going to show you how good I'm at this. So to me, it's this self-confidence and self-assurance that an elite rider's got. And to me, that transcends. I've worked, I've been very fortunate. I've worked with, you know, EWS, Enduro, um, podium riders. I've worked with world champion mountain bike riders, male and female junior riders. And the top guys, generally, you can spot them in their attitude. So I've seen incredibly talented riders who are way more talented on a bike and impressive on a bike than a lot of the most successful guys I've ever coached. But they haven't got this attitude towards 
committing to doing, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do something I don't really enjoy, but I know there's a reason for it. And that to me is where you see, you know, an elite rider really show themselves as being the best. And it doesn't happen overnight. And there's a junior rider I work with, Luke Williamson, and I really do think he's got all the ingredients, but the poor guy is landing on his head a lot. You know, he's coming off his bike and it's frustrating for him because then he over, you know, he tries even harder to prove himself. But when it clicks and when he understands that, I think one of the biggest misnomers and the biggest problems when we discuss psychology and mental approach is I think people think it's an innate thing. I'm born with it. I'm not born with it. I'm good at this. I'm not good at this. To a degree, we have, I would say we lean one way or the other. Are you an anxious person? Are you self-confident? Are you outgoing? Are you, you know, introverted? Yes, they're traits, but we can train this. We can train mindset. We can train approach. There are a lot of techniques, but I don't think people give it enough time. I don't think they listen enough. And there's too many uneducated people in those areas. If you imagine if I'm trying to pump someone up at the top of a mountain for a race run if i go come on you need to win this you can win this that's the most negative thing you can say to someone who's thinking oh i'm not sure whether you know this is the best place for me to be you're reconfirming quite a negative mindset so it's really hard because there's a lot of uneducated people out there around as we all know and they like to throw information and you'll see at a race, people come into the race and offer up some information. You should be on this line, you should be doing that. Your bike's too soft. And they're not qualified for that. You would never, you know, if you or I aren't feeling very well, we go and see a doctor. We don't go, like, tell me you don't go on Google. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so it, it's, a very, it's a very difficult situation. A mindset to me, um, this winning mindset, if you, if you look at it that way, to me, it's a commitment to doing the job, understanding the job and being confident that you're just focusing on you. You can't control anything else. And if you can control and you do control yourself, your approach, your training, your setup, your practice, that's all you can do. And if you can be happy with that, you'll be fine. And that's why these guys are such good losers. If I'm honest with you, it will beat them up inside but you generally don't see them throwing tantrums because they can respect the other guy. Fair play to you, mate. Oh, it gives me the motivation to go away and try and beat you next weekend. Yeah, that is an absolutely fantastic answer. That's that's very cool. So in terms of these favorable characteristics we need, so both the physical and mental, how do you think is best to approach this from a development standpoint? When you... Th- I could give you a really flippant answer. And I think that I'll give you the flippant answer first and then break it down. Yeah, love it. If you want to improve bike racing, you need to ride your bike a lot and you need to be in the gym. And I, I mean that in the most basic way. And the reason I say that is I see amateur riders who want to get better on their bike. They go to the gym all the time. They absolutely go bananas in the gym. They turn up on the weekend and they're no better. And they're no better because they've not ridden their bike. They've forgotten where it all fits, how this puzzle fits together. And a huge component is a skills component. So if my only opportunity to ride generally is at the weekend, 
I'm spending all this time in the week to, to train and that's brilliant, really good. But you cannot expect your skills development to have shot up as a result of something that's absolutely unrelated from a skill standpoint. There are transfers of skills between the gym, body position, posture and the bike. But me lifting weights in a gym, increasing my back squat to, you know, 1.75 times body weight or whatever, is that going to translate to me being able to jump that double and rail that berm off the brakes? No. I need to be on the bike to do that. And I have to try and get that through to people because I think it's really easily forgotten. And then the flip side of that is if I'm riding my bike all the time, which quite a lot of pros do, they ride their bike all the time, they don't build up these, should we say, underpinning areas to help them on the bike. When everything's going well, they're riding with their buddies, they're riding at 85% of their maximum effort, everything's fine. They're like, well, I don't need strength. I don't need power. I don't, why do I need to listen to Millway? Why is Millway taking me off my bike to get me better on my bike? And that only shows itself and rears its ugly head when you're at race speed and something starts to go either a little bit wrong because of a technical error or because of fatigue. And there's no way you can train to improve your fatigue just by doing downhill runs. Because the only, if we think about progressive overload, we're trying to go that bit harder, go that bit harder. We're not going to end up going harder from a physical standpoint because our technical limit has been reached before that. And so there's a huge risk to go, you know what, let's get the time and poles out and I'm going to smash 10 flat out runs because it's really good physically. There is an argument to say, yeah, let's ride on the limit. You'll be at 17 millimole of lactate at the bottom of a savage downhill run. That's unbelievable physical development. But how risky is that? What a strategy, you know? And therefore, what I'm trying to do is say to these people, let's put you in some of those similar physical circumstances somewhere else. Let's underpin some of the positions you're going to be in on the track. And that's why I'm a big believer in being stronger because it's all well and good when the bike is going exactly where you want it to. But all of a sudden you land from a high drop onto flat and you've not quite made the downslope and you need to be able to press those bars away or you need to be able to not let your ankles just drop to the floor because you're actually able to push back down on those pedals. And all of these things are best trained in a safe environment, you know, not going 40 mile an hour. And to me, that's where road bikes, you know, turbo trainers, watt bikes, the gym, rowing machines, we can use those to not just replicate. I'm not saying we're replicating the, the discipline every time, but I'm saying we're preparing for it. So when we're on the bike, we can go that bit harder. No, again, absolutely fantastic answer. Again, like ultimately mountain biking is a uh, very demanding sport and the stuff that you do in the gym is there to complement that sport not to kind of pull extra time away from the skill development or anything like that and i really like the fact that you mentioned that yes you can achieve these physical adaptations on the mountain bike purely but then you got a huge element of risk of injury if they're riding on the max day in day out so you could get a nice sort of balance between the two so yeah that is absolutely um, that's absolutely awesome so 
you mentioned, um, say, some kind of standards there, for example, back squat 1.75, all that kind of stuff. Everybody loves a, uh, a target, a standard to hit, to give a nice big uh, green tick next to their name. Yeah. Do you have, when you're testing these guys now, do you have any kind of key standards or key areas that you look at to say like, right, you are physically fit. We don't need to work anymore in that area. Whether it's strength, we need to be working on your aerobic base. Okay, we don't need to be working on your aerobic base. You actually just need to be spending more time on the bike. Do you have any kind of standards of how you approach this and therefore periodize someone's program off the back of it? The short answer is absolutely, yeah. I've, I've got, um, there's a, a wide range of tests that I can use um, to assess someone. I, I use a lot of blood testing um, to get a feel for exactly what's happening and I marry that up with wattage output and heart rate so we can build this nice picture where someone's at. It's quite, it's really interesting because there are some people, if you think about how a mountain biker is made up and how the sport challenges them, you can have someone that might have a sub-optimum strength standard or aerobic standard, but still we can get them to a very, very high level. And I think you should caveat that at the start to say, look, if someone turns up and, you know, I'm, you know I was looking at comparing, I'd like to get someone to four watts a kilo when it comes to sort of their anaerobic threshold, which is pretty damn high. You know, that's a really decent level, but I'm not going to say that's our sole target. I'm going to look at them and go, you know what? The guy's 75 kilos. He's at 270 on his anaerobic threshold. In my experience, and I've been doing this for that long, that I know that's cool with there. The, the flip side is if I've got someone who turns up at 75 kilos and at 200 watts, they're at four minimals. I'm like, right, you're in trouble. We, we, the, this is our area to work on. And the same goes with power output. I, I like to have people over 20 watts a kilo when it comes to peak power output. And I've seen numbers over 24. And, you know, we're getting into the realms. 24, 25 watts a kilo is getting on to sort of track sprinter, BMX sprinter, levels um so you know um to put that into place 1600 watts to 80 kilos is 20 watts a kilo and if if we're going up towards 2000 watts for that same body weight we're getting into that realm and i've got athletes that are there and interestingly the ones with the highest um the two real correlations that i see are the highest aerobic figures translate really well so i used to do a lot of vo2 max testing um and interestingly when i was coaching a lad called danny hart probably two months before his world championship win he was at just over 70 millimole uh he was just over 70 when it came to his vo2 max milliliters blah 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 um he was just over 70 there which was incredible yeah. um and then g afferton before his world championship win in 2014 was over 23 watts per kilo when it came to peak power output so can you see, like, they've won, but Danny wasn't as powerful as G, but aerobically was unbelievable. And G aerobically is very good, but he's an absolute powerhouse. So you can, and, and Greg, aerobically unbelievable, power output not quite as high. So, you know, when you pick, pick these male, and let's say I am talking about male athletes at the moment, when you pick these levels, um, you need a bit of an understanding of the sport. And sometimes I think that this is where there's other coaches that come in and I see riders working with other coaches and their pure S and C coaches who are really, really good at their, at their craft. 
but maybe they don't quite understand how these things all fit together. And that's no disrespect to them whatsoever. But if they're, if they're entrenched in another sport or they're in, involved in multi-sport, it's quite easy to say to someone, you know what, I need to get you stronger. But there is an element where he's strong enough. You know, I don't, my highest peak power athletes aren't always the strongest athletes. And I think that's really interesting to compare. Okay, so they don't necessarily have the heaviest deadlift, but they have the highest peak power output. And once you understand how you develop power, there's obviously a speed component to it. There's a skill element to it on a bike. It, these things all come together. So you're trying to build this picture. Um, I used to work, again, I, I like to have people squatting heavy. I like have to have people deadlifting over double body weight. But I've moved more to a trap bar now because we can lift heavier it's a little bit safer um if they've been out of the gym for three weeks i don't want someone deadlifting heavy because i think there's a big risk there um i've moved on to different ranges within the squat so i'm not always going below parallel um so i have these standards and in terms of what's interesting is if you look at upper body this is quite an interesting discussion again so upper body strength I like to look at max supine pull um, reps. I like to look at uh, speed of movement, so bench throw, and we'll use um, velocity on the bar. Um, I like to look at max bench. I, I've got some bench challenges where we look at repeating reps because I quite like, I was looking at some standards and one standard that was interesting that I was reading, and it was anecdotal, let's be honest, but you know, can you bench press more than your body weight for 10 reps? And that's quite a cool challenge. It's like, look, if you think you're strong and you've got a really high bench, that's great. But does it translate into multiple reps? And, you know, it is anecdotal, but my guys will fall under not having that impressive a bench press. It's rare for me to get someone to one and a half times body weight for a bench. And that's what 100 kilos at 70 kilo body weight. To me, that's pretty impressive bench press because I just don't spend, I don't have enough gym hours for that. Um, but... If we look at female athletes, I've seen female athletes get pretty close in terms of lower body strength and power outputs. Um, female athletes at or close to 20 watts a kilo, which is awesome, really high power output. Um, squats one and a half times body weight, which is really awesome, getting up again over that to 1.75. The problem comes with the upper body, and that's where I see the biggest differentiation, male and female. And where I've got guys who are doing chin-ups with 40 plus kilos from a belt and they're doing 20 reps easy from a dead hang, you know, I really struggle with female athletes to get anywhere close to doing chin-ups with any external load um, for, for reps. And I always say to the, to the females that I coach that to me, this is the area where you can make, you can get an advantage over your competitors by being strong in the upper body, a strong pull, a strong push, a really strong posture, because that's where I think if you can improve that versus the population, it gives you an advantage. It gives you something to really, you know, move on to. Um, and also when it comes to programming, if you look at percentage max lifts versus the reps, males will fall into that i can do 88 5% for five reps 90 for two or three nine you know i i can i can really see this guy's got a double in him because it's about 90 percent 
if I get any more, the weight's too easy. You know, you can see that. But with a female athlete, I've got so many examples of on a bench press, 35 kilos, super easy, 40 kilos, super easy, 42 kilos, super easy, put on 45 kilos, doesn't even go at once. And I'm like, how have we gone from this position where it's just so easy to not moving? Same on a back squat, you know, you could go from 75 kilo back squat up and down like a yo-yo, this is really easy. And you put on two and a half either side and all of a sudden there's no one rep. So to me, it shows that females can sit much higher in this rep range in their percentage max than males can. And it, I think you, when you understand that, I think you have to program for that. You have to set expectations. Um, you have to differentiate and understand maybe in a lower body power output and strength wise, they're there. But do we, are we going to get more bang for our buck if we work on the upper body so that when they're getting these landings and pitched over the bike, they won't fatigue like their competitors will do. Yeah, outstanding again. Very cool. <laughs> Would you say um, that the type of training you do reflects the riding style to some extent? So say, for example, Danny Hart, you're saying big aerobic base, rich Athen, very powerful. Would you then sort of, does that perhaps reflect their riding styles more to a certain extent? That's a really, that's a really interesting reflection, actually, and observation because with obviously without testing everyone i don't think you can say but one thing i can say is that if i'm on the track at a race and this is again something really you know we talked about people who who want to offer advice and they maybe don't understand what's happening i've been on the on a world cup track before and troy brosnan so troy's a similar build to danny very lean he's probably low 60 ish kilos body weight and Troy will come in and he's like floating along across the trail. And all of a sudden he'll nip, nip onto an inside line on a high line off camber and he'll make this turn. And I'll be like, that was incredible. And then you see someone like G or Brooke McDonald who are, you know, 80 odd kilos, G sort of mid eighties. And there's plenty of other riders who have built like Mick Hanna as well. And they'll come absolutely charging down and there's no way that they'd be on the same line necessarily. They'll hit an outside line, carry momentum. They're able to forcefully bully the bike that a, a smaller rider just can't do. And I think you, you do relate that to an understanding of saying, well, look, if I'm advising someone on a line choice, there might be a situation where I'm like, you're better off hitting the outside line as hard as you can because you're coming into it with massive inertia. You've got huge strength and you can just bang into that. But if someone you know, can dance on the bike and they're really light, there could be an argument to say, I think you could get up onto that inside line. I don't think you're going to struggle. And that, I think there is a certain um, transfer, shall we say. And, and that's why this sort of one size fits all philosophy. It, I don't think it works in anything when you're talking about the absolute elite. But I do think that when you're working with an amateur rider, you don't need to get into the one percenters. You can get into, let's get fitter and let's get stronger. You know, so I think that at elite level, this differentiation you can see. Yeah, brilliant. So if we sort of uh, wind it back in terms of a rider's sort of physical and mental development, what are like the common issues that you see with them? Is there any kind of like bang your head against the wall kind of movements you see with many sort of riders or... Was it kind yeah. of the thing that's really slowing down the overall progression so they can be aware of that 
and then just uh, tackle it head on? I think I think one of the areas that I pretty much referenced earlier was in their, in their sort of aerobic base, their aerobic underpinning. You see it in juniors a lot as well. They go out riding their bikes with their mates and they're flat out, get off and push. Flat out, get off and push. They, they won't ever go out for a 90-minute ride. So if you're the knock-on of that is they look pretty good for a short period of time but then all of a sudden they just hit this brick wall and they've got nothing left they've got no resilience to 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 any further work and i see that in a lot of amateur riders because what they do and you can quite understand the 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 situation you're in you put the kids to bed you've had your tea you know your, your missus wants a bit of time to to do what she wants to do and you're like i've got an hour so what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump on my bike and I'm going to go flat out for an hour and I'm going to come back. I'm going to be really tired, really sweaty. My legs are going to be burning. Surely that's the best thing I can do. And they'll do that again and again and again and again. And it might not even be an hour and it might be on the turbo trainer or it might be a rowing machine or something. And what you find is that this exercise is really high lactate accumulation. And when we're looking to build aerobic development we need pretty low power outputs we need you know mitochondrial density to be increased we, we all know where you can build that from and this sort of you can argue this 80 20 rule that you see a lot of classic um olympic sports where 80 percent of the time is very aerobic very steady state and then the other 20 percent is right we're going to go hard here what's happening is it's been it's sort of a hundred and nothing you know when the guys the an amateur rider might be going absolutely full bore for all of their training but they've got nothing underneath that. And so I see it in terms of their efficiency isn't very good. Um, if I see them move in a gym, a lot of it is a knock on from the iPhone all hunched over, really anterior dominant, n- not very good T-spine extension, really poor overhead, lack of ankle range, hamstrings are tight, don't know how to hinge. I see that all the time, all the time. And a lot of my job is trying to unpick some of that, make people aware of that, um, try and show them where an old injury has, has reared its ugly head. I do a knee to wall test very commonly. So you, you half kneel down to the um, half kneel down facing a wall. Um, if my right knee's on the floor, I want to basically flex my left knee to touch the wall whilst keeping the heel of that foot still on the floor. And that, I can then measure the distance from the big toe to the wall to say, right, what's my range? I look at eight centimeters as being my, that's decent, you know, decent range. And I'll work with physios all the time and we're aiming for that magic number if there's been an injury. But I commonly see, I've seen people at minus. So that means their toe is touching the floor and their knee can't touch the wall. So if you think about how that impacts into any functional movement pattern, they can't lunge walk because their heel comes off the floor and they collapse. They can't squat because they fall backwards or they've got a huge um, lean, you know, to get the range because their ankles haven't got any, any movement. Um, They've been told by some idiot that your knees shouldn't go in front of your toes when you're squatting. So the pattern is just horrendous and they don't understand where that has come from. So these are the problems I see and that's why when you talk about coaching an amateur versus coaching a professional, I think it's really important to say, I don't specifically look at them any differently, but what I do do is understand that if an amateur has got these big holes in their performance and an elite has got these big holes in the performance, 
the amateur might only have the time to plug those holes. But that will have a huge transfer into their progression. And an elite rider, he will still just as importantly plug those holes, but he's also got more time to then look at the bigger program, fit into a bigger program and progress further because ultimately he's got seven days a week to train. You know, he, as long as we don't do anything stupid, these guys can work pretty hard, pretty extensively. But an amateur rider, as much as they want to, they've got a nine to five job, they've got a commute, they've got a family, they've got probably loads of house chores to do, all of this stuff. And it just builds frustration if I give them a plan that's geared towards an elite athlete and say, that'll make you an elite athlete. It's just not manageable. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, so looking into potential challenges or roadblocks around sort of race uh, weekend, is there any kind of issues you perhaps see there, whether it's through like mental preparation, physical preparation, warm-ups, whether it's like their nutrition, are they looking at their hydration, their carbohydrate intake? Is there any kind of common themes that you perhaps see is prob- problematic around there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it again comes back to their mental approach. I think that's where it starts with the, the, the guys who are best prepared mentally have normally, and it's, it's been fascinating because I'll often receive, if I'm not at a race in this year with COVID, I was getting, um, getting messages from one of my riders and he was literally eight o'clock. I'm here, eight 15. I'm there nine o'clock. I'm here practice till 11. Then we're doing this, then we're doing that. And he was basically asking me to fill in the blocks and uh, fill in the blanks and go, what do you think about this? I'm finishing here. What do I do here? And he literally had had his whole day mapped out. And to me, I was like, this is what you need because there's no, there's no second guessing. I can bolt into that, right? Make sure you've had a banana here. Make sure you've had your water bottle there. Make sure you've done this and everything flows. It's very process driven. The issues come when it's a reactive to a situation. So they'll be practicing and they'll get a puncture and they'll have to go back and have the puncture fixed. And they're not really quite sure what to be doing with themselves. And they haven't had any breakfast because they're nervous and no one from the team has actually brought any, any nutrition of any value to the track because the, the mechanics have got a bowl of jelly babies and a you know, can of Coke. So it's, it's all of this stuff that you're managing. And to me, it's all about having a plan. I'm a real stickler for, you know, if I say to you 9.30, damn it, I better be here at 9.30, you know? And I think that if that's my attitude as a coach, if I don't see that in my athlete, it concerns me because I know that their race run is determined the day before. So if I'm racing on Sunday in the final, on Saturday, I will know my race time. Now, if my race time is at 3.27 and 30 seconds, because it's literally to the second, if I'm not in that start gate ready to go at 3.27 and 30 seconds, that's my weekend done. The clock starts. So if you, if you don't have that finite deadline and you're not prepared to work to that finite deadline, you might end up in that gate, but there could be a whole clusterfuck, if you excuse my French, before you've got there. So mentally, you're all over the place. I've known guys who've gone down with two left gloves on, you know, they've, nothing's been set up properly. You're not setting yourself up for a good outcome, are you? So to me, if you have that as your starting point, it's really easy to work backwards and then you can backfill and go, right, what are we having for breakfast? When are we having breakfast? Do we need to rehydrate between here and there? Do we need to refuel? And enduro is a real 
uh, to me, enduro is the event that has the highest calorie requirement. And in all honesty, and you'll know far more about this than me, but if I'm racing cross country for an hour and 40 minutes, if I've refueled up well prior and I've got some fuel during, I'll probably be okay at that time frame. But if I'm on the bike for six hours and I've got a water bottle and a couple of cereal bars in my bag, I'm in a hell of a lot of trouble. So that strategy around nutrition really has to be looked at. When am I having it? In what fuel sources? Am I struggling with having 60 grams of carbohydrate an hour because my guts are just in pieces from it? How am I going to do it? Am I looking at different you know, sugars that are a bit gentler on my stomach? All of these things are the conversations you can have with somebody to try and put them in a place where they're not thinking about that. They're just eating it or drinking it because their mind shouldn't be worrying about that stuff. And you can set up alarms on a Garmin. You can do everything like that to keep you on task. But to me, it starts with a, a process for the day and a, a preparation, really. Yeah, absolutely love that. Like when I work with endurance athletes, whether it is sort of cyclists, triathletes, runners, mountain bikers, especially endurance, uh, enduro riders, I just like everything surrounding race day nutrition, just be a, a tick box exercise. Yeah. It's time, tick, tick, tick. We tr- practice and trial all strategies in training that reflects and replicates yeah. um, race day demands. So they just got full confidence in the approach and is, it is just that tick box exercise. And all they have to do on that day is just focus on racing and doing a good job. That's exactly it. And, and, and as you know, that, you know, to perform to your best, you, you want the, the least tasks to worry about, the fewest things to worry about. And I think as a coach, it's a really important thing to bear in mind that our job is to take away some of the crap, take away some of that thinking so that they can just worry about the task in hand. And you, you do need to practice it. I think, that's, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. You have to practice this stuff. It, I always build in practice days into a training plan, race practice days, you know, go simulation days is what I call it. And we'll just go through everything because again, when nerves come into play, when you're in a stressful situation, a task that would take you 30 seconds can potentially take you three minutes. You know, I need my gloves, my helmet, my goggles. I need a water bottle and I need a jacket. Normally I can find that stuff straight away because it's staring me in the face, put it on, off I go. When it's still in the same place and you're stressed, you're running around like a headless chicken. So you need to understand and appreciate this. And that plan and practice, I think, makes all the difference. And generally, an amateur won't have done that. I think that's another thing. They'll turn up at a race. It's a very novel situation. You know, if they're doing maybe six races a year, maybe, then... They're only coming across this once every two months on average. It's a very rare experience for them to go through. But a professional rider in his day-to-day life, we're building in competition situations. We're building in preparation. We're building in your race run starts at this time. So do whatever you like before that, but be at the top of the hill for here. It's, it becomes second nature. And I think for an amateur, I would really consider, you know, if you're racing an enduro in three weeks time and it's four stages, go out. Do four stages across your ride. Plan them on a map. Work out how long it takes you to get from one to the other. You'll still have a great ride, but you'll have actually learned something that's transferable. Yeah, absolutely. And if they are working towards those race kind of um, intensities, it also highlights deficiencies in their overall physical and development. Exactly. 
yeah exactly that it's really i think it's a really reassuring thing to go i can complete the task you know i can complete this challenge and also i felt pretty good and it's it's a really reinforcing you know situation to be in and really good feedback for a coach and it helps them go right i'm on i'm on the right track here yeah superb in terms of their like preparation how much uh, autonomy do you like to give your athletes so from my perspective is yes i'll give you the plan and i'll give you all the education all the tools but then it's up to you to actually go and implement it you need to have some ownership and autonomy do you find that difference with different levels of riders from amateur sub elite all the way up to elite do some of them like to have more autonomy or do some of them just like here's your plan follow it i will do everything for you do you see differences there in terms of the mm-hmm. approach or what's your perhaps yeah. philosophy around that? I see huge differences. And to me, I don't see any differences between uh, elite and amateur. I'd see differences in personality trait, really personality type. There'll be some people who want the plan. They'll give you no feedback through the week and you'll say, how was it? And they'll say, I did it. And they absolutely did it. You ask them to do you could say, I want you to jump on your left leg 25 times and your right leg 20 times. They would do it. They wouldn't question it. They would do it. And they're incredible to train, but slightly frustrating because you don't feel like you get anything back. So I work with a rider like that. Fantastic athlete, amazing rider. How's training this week? Good. And you're like, bloody hell. But what do you mean by good? And he, he genuinely means I've done it. You've told me to do it. I've done it. Then you've got another type of person that will do the plan do the session and there'll be an awful lot of feedback from it. Okay. So you'll get a lot of like, that was good. That wasn't good. I like that. I didn't like that. Then you've got the type of person that wants to argue the toss. Okay. So they'll, they'll want to say, why are you doing that? I want to do this. Can we do that instead? And again, all of these situations you see in person as well. I've been in the gym with all of these characters. Please go and do that for eight reps. Off they go and do it. Please do that. Eight reps felt really good. That was like, how about going heavier? Can you do that for eight reps? Do I have to do that? Can I do five reps? That weight's too light. So though you've got those types of people and then you've got the fourth type of person that you see who they're complete free spirits and they'll do what you tell them to do. Yeah, no problem, really laid back. But then when they're not with you, you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, I didn't feel like doing that road ride today, so I'm going to do it tomorrow. And they will do it, but it's very much on their terms and they're much more laid back about it. And the plan to them is an an advisory thing. I'll take it with a pinch of salt. I'll dip in and out, but generally their adherence is pretty good. Now, again, those people can be frustrating to to train because you feel like you could get so much more out of them. You'd be like, if only you knuckle down, you get more out. But I think that's missing the point. I think that's, that's misunderstanding your athlete. And I think you have to understand people are like this and you need to work with that. I, I've worked with two or three of these guys who are world-class. They've been on World Cup podiums. And to start with, I was banging my head against a brick wall going, you could be so much better if you knuckled down. But what I didn't understand was that in their world, they were knuckling down, but they were knuckling down to the full big picture of their life. And everything had a place and they didn't want to be stressed out by it. And if they did focus on it to the minute to the letter it would put this internal pressure on themselves it will make them think i've got no excuse for failure here because i've done everything it's quite a good protective mechanism for that final group i'm talking about because they can go you know what 
I did all right there, but I could, everyone thinks I could do so much better if I got my head down. So they're sort of protected from criticism a little bit because they know what's going to come. So you, you do see all these types of people. And I think I reflect on myself and what I can do to support them. I find it, I used to just go, look, I need more feedback. I need X, you know, I want to know what it felt like. I want the feedback in my terms. And I think I've rephrased that a little bit now. And I'm going, right, if he wants to give me one word feedback, that's cool. No problem. I'll try and tease that a little bit more. I'll try and get some video footage maybe. I'll ask him to film something if I'm not with him. I'll ask him how it's feeling if I'm in the gym. But I'll appreciate that there are different types of athlete and I think you need to alter the way you work to get the most from them because I don't think the same approach will get the most from each of those different types of people. Yeah, again, couldn't agree more. So just very much like you said, just meeting them on their own level, talking in their own language and really getting an understanding of their own perspective of how the training and nutrition fits in their life and how it's going to complement the overall goal of getting them, getting them onto a podium, really. So, yeah, that's it. That's it. And that is, we are assuming, when we talk about this, we are assuming these are very motivated people. It should be said. If you've got someone that's quite apathetic towards it and they dip in and out and they're not that bothered, they're quite apathetic to everything, that's on them. And you can, you, I think it, it allows you then, if they say, I'm not progressing, and you say, well, you've given me no feedback, you've not stuck to the plan, you've not done what I've asked you to, and they've not got a good reason for that, I do think you can bang the ownership back on them and say what's going on. But, you know, when you build a relationship with someone who is working hard, they are doing the work, they are committed to the overall plan of improving themselves on the bike and being a bike racer, that's when you're, that's when you're making sure that the relationship really works, you know? Yeah, totally. So looking into the sort of next sort of question now, so this very nice saying of the greatest ability of an athlete is availability. So essentially the more sessions they can complete, the more sessions they can actually improve on and adapt yeah. from um better chances of overall success so from a mountain biker's perspective how can we ensure that they stay injury and illness free so they could turn up to more races and hopefully step on the top step that's a hard one isn't it because i i, I completely agree and i think that the the one thing to to understand and the one thing to make clear to the athlete is riding your bike is a session. That is a session. You know, being out, having fun with your mates, doing huge jumps, racing downhill, you know, just on an uplift day, that is a session. And sometimes that can be overlooked and people can try and cram in from an elite level, potentially think that the training is one thing and the riding the bike is somehow like an extra to that. So you have to get them to understand it's all one and the same thing because you can get a, a situation where people are um, almost overtraining, if I'm honest, and they're not recovering. And that is one big stumbling block to availability, isn't it? If, if someone's really tired all the time, that's a big problem. Another one is nutrition. If they're not recovering fully, they're not fueling themselves up. That's a real problem. I, I work with a vegetarian athlete and we were having real problems because he's very lean. He's, I don't think he takes enough protein through the day. 
We were struggling for suitable protein sources that he would stick to. And that was affecting his overall well-being, recovery and training. And I also thought his immune system was really poor because when you like reflected or reviewed a plan and you would like have bolted in, I feel a bit ill, I've got a bit of a cough or, you know, headache or runny nose or whatever. To me, I was like, this, this is the problem here. Um, another thing for me is mobility is basic mobility. And I've got more and more interested in sending people to, you know, do a 10 minute YouTube video, a yoga video. Do I, I've got a routine of stretches that I like people to go through mobility exercises and essentially it's getting, it's unpicking some of the issues that you get. So if you're sat in a van for two hours to go riding, then you're on your bike for two hours, then you get back in the van for two hours and then you sit on a sofa, you can understand you're in a very similar position for your entire day. And chronically that can cause issue. Hip flexors are short and weak, issues with lower back, you know, T-spine needs some work, no rotation in there whatsoever, hamstrings are tight, all of these things all of a sudden become a problem. Al, I've got a really sore lower back. Yeah, no shit. I'm not surprised. So I try and prehab a lot of that. And I've been working around ways to do that most effectively from specific exercises that they do all of them because I know it's belt and braces to some self-ownership, foam roll, tell me what's sore, work on that area. And then... I found some YouTube videos, some just yoga, you know, there's millions of yoga videos out there of different durations. And I've actually found just a 10 minute video. If you're doing that once a day, it's something, you know, it's something for you to do. Yes, 20 minutes is better. Yes, half an hour is better. But if you're actually doing it, and I know that the common areas that are causing problems, we're just trying to stay away from that edge of it causing an issue. I think it maintains your availability to train. Um, so I think those to me are some of the, the key areas to be aware of is keeping them healthy. So nutrition, balance of the training session, what are they taking in, understanding the total volume of training that we're trying to achieve that week and how we fit it in. And, and again, it's, it's, maintain, it's trying to be injury free and these things all bolt together. If you're really tired and you're riding a downhill bike in really technical terrain, you might crash and hurt yourself. You know, if you're really, really sore because you've been traveling and riding loads, it will, you'll go in the gym and you'll put your back out. So it's just trying to keep everything together and not disparate, you know, not separate. Yeah, cool. So obviously you mentioned it, uh, crashing being uh, one of those things that unfortunately does happen to riders. Um, is there anything we could do to make them more robust so they're more likely to bounce out of a crash, whether it's looking at strengthens or connective tissue, making it maybe put more muscle on them so they have a bit more protection and padding there. Is there any kind of general themes or thoughts you have around that? Yeah, I um, essentially all of the above. Um, to me, one of the things I try and look at is having strength in range. So a lot of people will try and have strength in this uh, anterior push, but not necessarily overhead. And they can, I think people can find that they're straight, they're strong in quite constrained ranges because they're looking at specific exercises. And I still want them to be strong 
add an arm extent, full extension. Because obviously if I come up onto the floor and I put my arm out in front of me, yes, I might break my wrist. Yes, I might dislocate my shoulder. But potentially I could minimize some of that if my range is better and my strength within that range is also better. Um, so that's certainly one thing I look at. The second thing is I try and uh, make sure that there's no inherent weakness and an inherent weakness may be an asymmetry left to right. It might be a previous injury. And if that's the case, don't forget that some of these inherent weaknesses might actually cause the crash. So I've come off something. I've not got the inherent strength to withstand the, the forces. And although my inherent weakness is in my left ankle, I've, collapsed on the left ankle and I've shot across the track to the right straight into a tree and dislocated my shoulder. So it might be quite hard to correlate the two of those when you go to the doctor and he said, oh, you dislocated your shoulder, but your shoulder's really strong. So don't worry, you know, nothing we can do. When if you look at the big picture, you might be like, well, you know what, the guy's really, really weak in this area. I've been banging on at him about this for ages. And all that's happened is he's collapsed over the bike and then had a secondary issue that's caused the crash. Um, I'd say that a third area, and it's something that I discuss. Some athletes, one of my athletes, funnily enough, I'm writing a plan for him today for his off-season, and his off-season prep is very much around shoulder muscle mass. He really wants to feel like he's got bigger shoulders to protect. He's had a lot of niggly injuries, subluxations in the past, um, clavicle injuries, Issues where it's not AC joint injuries, it's not necessarily stopped him riding, but it's, it's made it uncomfortable, it's made him weak. And we're looking at an insurance policy, let's be honest. We're, we're paying into an insurance policy and going, you know what, if I can put some massive deltoids on you, potentially, and really build that rotator cuff, maybe that will play a part and that could help. And again, there might be some people listening to this who go, yeah, completely agree with that. There might be someone going, absolute bollocks, there's no link whatsoever. I don't care because if that athlete is bought into it, am I, is there a negative outcome from this? In my mind, no. It's improving strength and range. It's improving his commitment to the plan. It's not limiting anything else. He will feel stronger. He will have this proprioceptive feedback from that. And in my mind, that's a positive. There's no negative thing. And I think you can look at a plan and say, why are you doing that? And yeah, I've, I've done it myself. What a load of crap. He's put up a 15 second Instagram video. Don't agree with it. It's rubbish. If you actually were to backtrack a little bit and have a conversation, if you're working with a diligent coach, you're working with a diligent athlete, they might have had a conversation about that. And the athlete has really bought into it. He really likes balance training. I look at it and go, that's crap. Because to me, balance is skill dependent. I need you to be balancing within your domain, within your area. You know, someone who's incredibly balanced on a mountain bike, does that mean they can stand on a Swiss ball and dance around on it with one foot or dance around a Bozu ball? No. But if I could, you know, that's not to say that if I'm rehabbing an injury from someone who's, who's had an ankle injury, of course I'll get them on a Bozu. I might get them hopping onto a Bozu. I might get them on different heights. But you take that out of context and all of a sudden it's opened you up to this world of like, the guy doesn't know what he's on about. You know, I've, I saw someone was commenting on a video of someone doing jump squats and they were like, or half squats. And they were like, why would you do that? And I remember just thinking, ah, that's almost gone back on the guy who's made the comment. You don't understand the big picture. You don't know why it's happened, where it fits in. And 
you know, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to do the best for the athlete. And I think if you've got someone who's pulling things out of the air and he's going, Oh, I'll have a bit of that. I'll have a bit of that. I'll have a bit of this. That's not going to get anyone anywhere. You know, the athlete won't see any consistency or progression with it. But if you're trying to put together a plan that's progressive and as part of that, we might have an injury prevention element within it. And that could be uh, unilateral exercises. That could be mobility based. That could be unstable surfaces. That could be specific strength around a certain joint. I do think there's definitely a place for that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, hit the nail on the head there really in terms of an athlete sort of buy into a certain exercise and whether it's bullshit or not, if they bought into it and they, and they think and perceive it's going to be a benefit to them on the bike and then they can see improvements throughout the week, throughout the preseason or so on, yeah. then they're going to think they're better on the bike because they're better prepared. Whether it actually has a meaningful effect physiologically is another thing, but in their own head, they feel like they're going to be far better off. I complete, And also, I completely agree with that. And I think that the more I think on this matter the more I think it's almost the coach's ego that's at risk because they're like, that exercise is crap. It doesn't help you. I want to be the one to make the difference for you. And I'm only going to give you stuff that's going to make the difference. And the problem is that the athlete will report back, you know what? It was those TheraBand movements that I was doing that's made all the difference. And you're pulling your hair out if you had any because you'd be like, no, it's not. It's all the other stuff you've done. But that's, it doesn't matter, does it? If the athlete thinks it's his TheraBand exercise that made a difference, no problem. We've just got to appreciate as coaches that we can just control what we can do. And if the athlete wants to thank his, you know, sticker that he's put somewhere or his red gloves or whatever. His that's two left what, gloves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly it. So I think that's exactly right. The only thing we've got to say and we've got to do is if we see something that is potentially risky, dangerous, detrimental, um, you've got to nip that in the bud and say, you are not doing that. That's crap. That's dangerous. You're going to hurt yourself. And I'm, I try to be quite definitive. And if someone wants to do something, I'm like, no, I'll give you that. Yeah. I'll put it at the end of the session. I'll do my stuff first, but I'll give you that. That's no problem. Or as part of your warm up, yeah, let's put that in there. But again, you know, if someone's in, the, in this day and age, that might be the only thing that's shown on social media that day for this athlete that's got 100,000 followers. Oh, in the gym with Coach Millway, and they're doing some random thing that you're like, that's got nothing to do with me. <laughs> nothing to do with me at all. But who cares? You know, uh, I think I'm old enough and ugly enough to just think, I know why I'm doing my thing. I know why they're doing that. We're happy. <laughs> it's just our first do no harm kind of policy, isn't it? Exactly. That. Exactly. Like if it doesn't do any harm and has the, or has the ability to have a neutral to positive effect, then crack on. Fine. Exactly. Yeah. And just don't let it take too much of the session. Like, you know, fit it. If they want to do that, that's fine. But it can't, if you've got 90 minutes with them, if that's taking 20 minutes, you've wasted 20 minutes. But if you can give them five minutes for it, and I think that's the management of the session, isn't it? A management of your expectations and your outcomes from, from, that, from that session with them. Yeah, 100%. So obviously we kind of finished the sort of last rounds of the World Cup. Um, I believe it was two weekends ago. Yeah. Uh, so as we transition into this off-season and pre-season, um, how does the training differ now compared to 
in season is in season very much a case of just maintenance of what you've done in off season, pre season, or is it a case of can we actually still develop and progress during this time? Generally, the off season is our time to reevaluate what we've done, work out where the gaps are that we see, and do our very best to improve their physical development. Um, however, before that occurs, there has to be an air, a time for recovery. Now, this season has been really weird because it's quite an interesting situation we find ourselves in. So at the end of February, beginning of March, we were raring to go. We, hit, we were PBing every session. Everyone was feeling amazing. I was, I've never been as excited about a World Cup season because I was like, I've done a good job here, if I'm honest with you. These guys are buzzing. The numbers, I'm a numbers man and they all look good. They're riding their bikes a lot. I'm really excited. Let's see how we get on. And then bang, COVID hits. We're absolutely screwed. So we had a lot of conversations through the season and through lockdown. And coming back to personalities, different athletes wanted to approach in different ways. Some of them were like, I have to keep my routine because I'll go mental. Others were like, I can't keep up this effort because I'm going to burn out. Others were like, I don't want to think about it because racing's not happening. We're not going to get any racing this year. I want some time to actually just enjoy myself and relax. So we had that situation. Then we had some dates to work to. But what it meant is essentially these guys were in a training plan and a structured training plan for a lot longer than normal. They were going all the way through the season and I was fluctuating between hard weeks and recovery, easy weeks, hard weeks, easy weeks, hard weeks, so that they had something to work to and they worked hard, but then they knew it wasn't going on forever. We then had this intense block of racing that was back-to-back races across a weekend. They were at World Champs, which is a horrible week. It was really tough conditions, very, very technical, muddy, cold. Then they moved on, had races. They were on the road. One of the lads come back after being on the road for three months because his team were like, we need you in Europe now while you can get over here. Now, you would think a rational person looking at the numbers and the, the calendar would think they, they'd want, Alan, give me two months off. I can't deal with this. I need to recover. I kid you not. Every one of them has been like, bang, when are we starting? When are we starting? When are we starting? They're so motivated. And I've got to balance. I'm like trying to hold them back. So I think they need recovery. Then we try and make them fitter and stronger and we periodize that. Now, I normally use a classic model where we we work on sort of a pyramid, aerobic work first, tick that box, move on to some threshold work, move on some sprint repeat work, power strength is all in within that. We we might flick that about with various plans and you know conjugated work, etc. But by March, in my mind, we've, we've got to be 95% there. And through the season, it's very much a case of, to me, it's cherry picking specific things. So I know a racer who, before he went to Canadian World Cup, he felt as though it was all upper body. And he said to me, if my bench press is where I think it needs to be before Canada, I'll be happy. So obviously I go, okay, we need to make sure that we keep that number. And if he can PB before he goes away, we've made an improvement. He can see we're moving forwards. Some people it's power output. Some people, they're not so worried about the numbers. They just want to maintain and don't want to drop away. So it's hard to keep pushing forwards once we've hit the season. And for anyone who works in, well, yourself working in team sports where there's a league and there's a cup and there's events 
you know, once, twice a week for extended months, it's really hard to make these gains unless you're having time off and then you're able to put more volume in and then you come back out and you go back in again. We can't be like weightlifters where you've got three months to plan for one day and then you're like, cool, done. Another three months, plan for one day. So, yeah, it, it's trying to get that balance um, and get that buy-in. Because if you did all this training and you finished the training in February and then they do nothing and then they do really well in August, can they link what they were doing in February to their result in August? Probably not. In their head, it was like it was just entertainment for the winter. And that's what we've really got to make sure they don't feel because you won't get extended buy-in with that. Yeah, 100%. I guess um, a key word during the season will just be adaptability. So you don't know how they're going to hold up after a weekend away, loads of traveling, what issues they have. So perhaps it's just maintaining, get a few like key wins, whether it is max balance or bench press for their like, own sort of, again, bit of confidence there, whether it's in a wattage for uh, yeah. just kind of maintain that peak. And then, yeah, how they present after a World Cup. Are they sore? Are they tired? they got niggles? What do they have to adapt to the plan? And, everything in between yeah exactly that and, and you've made a really good point there with adaptability and also you sort of uh made a real clear implication that recovery is key you know when they come back from a world cup you've got to if you can get them in for a session and have a full mot with a physio and go through some rehab work and loads of mobility work and loosen them off and send them away feeling good that's not maintenance that you know that's not just maintaining a bet that's an improvement from a situation they were in so we've really helped them come back and not let them go down this slippery slope of being sore and tired. And we're building them back up so they feel fresh. Yeah, amazing. Cool. So final question for today. So yeah. uh, for mountain bikers, go from average to elite. So for example, amateur into sub-elite or to the top level of the international kind of stage, <laughs> what advice would you give them? Is there like a, a top three Everyone loves the top three and it's very difficult to answer, but is it like a three main things you feel like they need to focus on to get to that next stage? So I've been thinking about this. I appreciate you telling me this before because I've, I've really been thinking about this and I think there are three things. I'm not saying these are the definitive three things, but these are three things that come to mind and in no particular order, really. Um, <clears throat> if we're talking about trying to get someone from, an amateur level or a sub elite level all the way through to elite, I'd say that the first thing is consistency. And what I mean by that is consistent training, no excuses. If you've got something that needs to be done and you've identified it, get it done. Now that should be manageable. And if you decide as an amateur athlete that you're going to dedicate two sessions to riding your bike, one in the week and one at the weekend, just do it. Don't have any excuses and go, I don't feel like it or it's raining or I can't be bothered. And the same comes when if you've got a training plan that, let's be clear, is manageable. I'm not asking you to do something that's not manageable, but the, what I see, the difference I see between an amateur and a professional is if a professional is going to do something, it just gets done. An amateur will have some reason why it didn't get done. My bike was broken, my tires were flat, my daughter was late from school, didn't feel like it the weather was bad whatever there's always a reason so consistency to me will get you an awful long way the second one and it, it almost sounds counterintuitive but honestly i've seen this for for more than a decade is is actually take advice if you're going to seek advice 
take it. If you've gone to see um, a strength and conditioning coach for some advice and he's given you that advice, for goodness sake, just do what he's told you to do because there's a really good reason for it. The same if you go to a physio. How many times have you seen someone who's gone to a physio, the physio's gone, right, we need to work on your rotator cuff. We need to work on some scap retraction. That person goes away and they come back three weeks later and the physio says, have you done your exercises? And they're like, no, they've not taken the advice. And that, that really winds me up. A, a professional athlete, you see in their recovery and their rehab and they come back quicker than ever, such and such has made a quicker than ever recovery. It's because they've bloody done the work. They've listened to what they've been told to do and they've actually done it. So, and to follow that up, I personally think it, and I'm, I'm not hawking for business at all. And I'm not interested in people doing this for me, but what I'm saying, I think it's worth paying for advice because I actually think it makes you feel like you've got to listen to it. I went to see um, a strength and conditioning coach quite early in my career. And I was like, look, I want you to mentor me through this. I want these number of sessions with you. I went down to see him for three months and I paid him. I paid him a fair chunk of cash because I knew that if I paid him that money, I'd be invested in listening to what he had to say. And I'd actually take it on board because there was like a value for money aspect. And if I paid for it, Maybe I'll listen to it. If you try and ask for a freebie off someone or you try and get a snippet of information off the internet, you might go, maybe I shouldn't bother with it. But if you've invested in that financially, you've made a decision to go, this guy's worth listening to. And you probably have more chance of putting it into practice. So whether that's rehab, whether that's strength, whether that's seen a psychologist, I think that is my number two. Um, and my number three, I put environment. That's what I've thought about a lot. And to me, environment is something that's often overlooked. Um, I think if you're trying to do everything on your own or in an environment where maybe your partner doesn't understand why you're bothering with it or your friends don't quite understand why you're bothering with it, it's quite easy to hit brick walls quite early on. Now, I'm not saying convert your missus into being a downhill fan. That's not what I'm saying. But... I think it's important to try and create a culture where maybe you're going to meet someone down the gym. Maybe you're going to meet someone for a ride. Maybe again, this links with consistency. If I say to someone, I'm going to meet you at 7.30 on Tuesday night for a night ride, I better be there at 7.30 on a Tuesday or I look like I'm flaking out. So it goes in hand in hand, you know, with consistency, but find people who are faster than you on the bike, find people that are stronger with you. And that environment you know, I found it in a weightlifting gym. I love Olympic weightlifting. I went for years. I don't go as much anymore to the club, but I turned up and I was by far the weakest person in there. You know, I, there's guys snatching 150, guys clean and jerking 190, just incredible. And there was me, 70 kilos in a snatch. And I was like, yeah. And everyone's like, that's my warm up weight. But you take that 70 kilos in the snatch and then you take it into an environment where no one Olympic weightlifts. And all of a sudden, you're like, actually, he's done pretty well here because he's worked hard and he's got to, you know, he's starting to throw a bit of weight around. And that's all because you put yourself in an environment which is really rewarding. And on the bike, I think that's as valuable as in rehab, in the gym, in anything you do, trying to create that environment and being aware of it as well. So, yeah, consistency, take advice and actually listen to it and implement it. And try and create an environment for yourself that you feel is going to be enjoyable and conducive to doing the work. You know, have you got somewhere, create a space to train, 
get your bike ready to go riding, whatever it might be. Yeah, superb. I absolutely love them three. They're really cool. So yeah, in terms of like creating the environment, it's that saying of create the environment so the environment creates you. And then if it is a very conducive uh, environment, you're always going to elevate to a higher standard. So you go into that weightlifting gym, you're going to elevate to their kind of standard. You'll try and emulate that. If you're training with people who are just snatching the bar, like 20 kilos or with uh, training plates on, you're not going to overly want to progress and push as much as you probably can do. Absolutely. And I think it's also easy to be intimidated in these environments. Can you imagine how intimidating that is? I'm a skinny 67, 68 kilo, you know, cyclist walking into a weightlifting gym full of, you know, big alphas throwing a lot of weight around. You've got to leave your ego at the door. They might think, who is this kid? You know, what's he doing here? That's fine. Give it five minutes. They'll see you committed. They'll see you ready to go and they'll help you. I see it in commercial gyms a lot. You get bodybuilders and strong men and they look intimidating. And I think, again, I can, I can see this from a junior perspective. I can see it from a female perspective. I can, I can understand that there are some environments that initially don't look inviting. But once you've got in there and you understand that generally the reason why those people are so good is because they love what they do. They're dedicated to what they do. And those people generally are evangelists. They want you to love it too. It's very rare you'll go to see someone who's got an, I'm into my motorbikes. You see someone who's got an amazing motorbike and you walk up to him. Well, I love your bike. It's very rare. He tells you to piss off. He normally wants to tell you all about that motorbike. He wants to tell you what he's done, how he's got there, the best things to do to it, when he rides it, everything. It's the same in any other environment. You go riding with a decent mountain biker. He'll tell you all about his setup. You'll learn so much. Same in the gym, you know, this guy's good because he dedicates himself. This girl's amazing, moves incredibly well. Wow, how'd you do that? It's because I love doing it. And, and they will want to help you and, you know, do push through that and just, you know, be aware that these things aren't always easy when you take that first step to create that environment, but they will be positive most of the time. Yeah, brilliant. And if those people, those individuals give you advice, take it yeah take it bloody take it exactly that <laughs> no that was an absolutely fantastic conversation today thank you very much for your time i really value and appreciate it so for individuals mountain bikers to get a um or basically just to follow you along in terms of your progression through the next sort of season uh with your athletes how can they best follow you how can they queue up to do with you I guess um, the platform I use to share this sort of content is Instagram. That's where I, I will post uh, the training I'm doing, the work I'm doing with people. I might try and put up some educational stuff in terms of why we're doing certain things and some exercises. And I try and keep that as a bit of a CV really. So you can see what I'm doing. Um, that probably it's just Alan Milway. That's, that's my name. You can find me. I've got a website as well, uh, which is milway.co.uk that talks a bit about the work that I do and um yeah any questions anyone has I'm, I'm always i'm i'm an evangelist as you probably heard me rabbiting on for an hour and a half but i, I love it i'm i feel very privileged to have this job i take it very seriously i work very hard it's how i put food on the table and i, I want to make sure i do a very good job um but that doesn't mean i don't want to help other people in this area whether they're a coach or an athlete i want you know, i want people to love it too no incredible alan thank you again for your time amazing Pleasure. Have a great day, and I'll hopefully speak to you soon. Definitely. Thanks, mate. See you Bye. later. Cheers. Bye.